Hi, this is Lori, your host of Happiness Hangout, a space to come and elevate your happiness levels. You, me, and our guests will discuss and help you apply happiness to all aspects of your life, even if you're already happy. Get your daily boost of information to help you feel your best. Well, hi, everybody, and welcome to the Happiness Hangout. This is Lori, your host. Happiness Hangout's a place and space to help you feel your best. And we are pleased today to have a guest on our show. And I would like to tell you a little bit about her. Um, this is a show that's uh, going to discuss how to feel better during times of grief and uh, working through grief. And Shirley has some. Um, you know, a story to tell. And um, we have lots of good things to talk about to help people in that area. So let me go ahead and introduce Shirley Brad. I'm going to tell you a little bit about her. Uh, Shirley Brad. she became an award-winning television producer and writer and the author of Over the Rainbow Bridge and Six Word Lessons on Coping with Grief because of her son, Corey. At age three, doctors diagnosed Corey with acute lymphoblastic leukemia. He died just after his ninth birthday. With the knowledge that she gained from her experience with Corey's illness and death, Shirley helped create Seattle area support groups and Elizabeth Kubler-Ross grief workshops for children and teens who came from all over the U.S. and Canada to participate. For 15 years, Shirley Enterbride conducted weekend workshops for Providence Hospice in Everett, Washington, and then went on to become a certified grief recovery specialist. She continues to conduct grief workshops and also does one-on-one grief work with individuals. A dedicated and inspiring volunteer, Shirley Brad received an Angel of Hospice Award and the Jefferson Award for Outstanding Public Service. She is the past president of Candle Lighters Childhood Cancer Foundation of Washington, where she volunteered for 10 years. When Shirley Brad found out that federal lawmakers had not specifically funded childhood cancer research, she jumped right in and spent five years as the Washington State Team Leader for Cure Search National Childhood Cancer Foundation. NCCF is a national organization whose mission is to secure federal and private research funding for the Children's Oncology Group. Shirley Enabrad is the author of Over the Rainbow Bridge, Six Word Lessons on How to Cope with Grief, and Six Word Lessons on How to Survive a Devastating Diagnosis. She lives in Hawaii, where she conducts grief workshops, blogs, and writes and helps people plan great vacations. Shirley Enabrad, welcome to the Happiness Hangout. Thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled. Well, wonderful. We're so glad to have you today. And, you know, we're talking about a topic that... um, runs very, very deep in uh, people's hearts. Um, Probably most of our listeners have lost somebody very close to them. If they haven't, there's a very strong chance that they will. And and I think it's important um, on my show to talk about death and the process of death um, in terms of, you know, what that means in our life and how to work through that um, in a way that might be more peaceful and get us to the place of acceptance and, you know, trying to get to a better place. Um, I can very much relate to this. I have lost my mom. I lost her at 34 years old. And so I, um, I can walk through this feeling my own story. But, you know, we're here again to help people. And it's not always about being great and happy in the moment, but it's about being able to get through challenging situations to get to that point where you feel enriched again, where you, where you can accept and, and feel better. So that's what we're here to talk about. Um, I guess the first thing I want to do is talk to you a little bit about, about people with, with a, what we might call a devastating diagnosis in terms of, you know, whether it's whatever it might be cancer or other issues that are devastating outcomes that might be, um, short, uh, lifespans for people. At least that's what they're told. That doesn't always happen. Uh, how do you deal with that when you're helping a family member or someone specifically with a devastating diagnosis? How do you work with people to deal with that? Well, excuse me, unfortunately, I've had a lot of experience uh, in this area, which is what prompted me to write the book. But um, my son was only three when he was diagnosed, and he didn't really understand what was going on with his body or why people were sticking him with needles and that kind of thing. 
But um, I think the most important thing was to be honest, even with kids as young as three, and especially around a diagnosis. You know, back in the, the old days, they didn't, they weren't honest, and they didn't tell people that they were dying or that they could die, and they would just kind of pretend things weren't happening. And, you know, which made people think they were crazy because they felt like um, terrible, and, um, and everybody was whispering around them. You still see some of that here, uh, even though it's 2016. So I think the biggest thing is to be honest and then try to create a sense of um, positive energy and a sense of community around the person and, the, and their families that are going through that. I myself have came from a very big family, so I was fortunate. And then um, I created um, a secondary family with my friends. I was very careful about which friends I chose to keep in my life because they had to stay positive. Otherwise, it would scare my children. And, um, and I've worked with families whose kids are, you know, suffering from cancer or kidney disease or whatever, and they're very, very perceptive about what's going on around them. I think they're more perceptive than adults. So I think the idea of keeping everything, um, you know, not rosy, ha-ha, happy, but um, happy, normal, and try to live life as fully as possible so that they gain that perspective that, you know, I might be dying, but it's not today. And, um, and that helps, keeping positive and thinking good thoughts. Teaching gratitude is huge. My little guy was so grateful for every day that he was given that, he took every day as, wow, here, I'm still here. Now what am I going to do? This is going to be a great day. And I learned from him how to stay positive and then how to create that for my surviving child. And, um, and then to, to, to offer that sort of advice to other families that were going through the same thing that we went through. Does that make sense? And it does. And, you know, you, you helped me think of a question here. You know, a lot of times you're, you could be giving a diagnosis and someone might say this many months or years. And and you hear of so many people that get a lot more than what they're told from a doctor. How do you balance the word hope with somebody? Do you, um, do you discuss that with them? Like, okay, you've been given six months. Um, do you sort of tell them to get rid of that number in their head? Or how do you deal with that with that number they get? Absolutely. You know, I, I, I am really upset when I hear that doctors are still doing that to people because it's kind of like putting an, uh, an expiration date on them. And some people will succumb to that date. And I tell people, don't give up hope. You never know what's going to happen. I have a dear friend who was diagnosed with like a great, what do you call it, level four melanoma. Mm-hmm. And he was not expected to make it. He decided that he let them cut the, um, a pretty big segment out of his back, but he refused to have chemotherapy because he didn't want to feel sick for the time that he was given. So he decided to quit his job as a sports writer and create a comedy show about living in the moment. And, you know, so he's still alive today. Oh, my and That was gosh. like 20 years ago. So he found the humor and he, he changed the whole outcome. So I think it's important to not succumb to those numbers. And if your doctor tells you something even remotely close to that, just say, stop. I don't want to hear that. You know, I want to, I want hope. Tell me what's good. Tell me what's possible. Don't tell me what's not possible. Because, you know, if you think about it, you can really will your like you were mentioning, will yourself to that date. I mean, how many people think this is it at six months and, Mentally, you can you can make that happen, you know. So that's you what you don't want to you don't want to do that. You just want to you know, be, I think, more nebulous about it, more open minded about it. Well, I think what happens is people give up hope, and that's the the, the key word right there. Um, my sister in law was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, and um, what happened was her family, everybody started treating her like a dying person. So. She died, you know, and she didn't mm-hmm. put up a fight until it was too late. And then it was like, okay, you know, the, the die was cast. But I've seen people, I have a dear friend who was diagnosed with breast cancer, and she thought, nope, this isn't going to get me. I'm going to make goals for myself. Her husband came home from work the day after she was diagnosed, and there was a for sale sign on their, 
front lawn. She hadn't told them that they were going to move. But she decided that she wanted to, um, there was a house that she liked in the next town over, and she wanted that house. And so her goal was to get their house sold, buy the other house, and then she already started drawing up plans on how she was going to make her garden and how she was going to paint the house and all that stuff. And she survived. And again, it was stage four. So mm-hmm. um, when I was diagnosed with breast cancer, I mine was um, stage one, but it was still scary. And But yeah. I took a page out of her book, and I started making goals for myself and saying, this, this isn't going to happen. This is an inconvenience. I am not going to allow this to, you know, invade my whole life and scare me and scare my family. And so I had the surgery, and I moved to Hawaii. <laughs> well, I was just going to ask you how you got to Hawaii. Wow. Um, well, it, it enables you to do things that you hold back for other reasons. They don't; Those reasons don't seem important anymore. And then you're off. Um, you know, you mentioned Hawaii when you said you live there. Of course, everybody goes, oh, yes, love it. Um, how much do you think your environment, and I know what you mean by support. I mean, obviously, having a great support of friends and family is extremely important. Relationships are everything. But let's talk about environment. You know, being where you want to be. How much do you think that affects a person's mentality to keep going? Because there's nothing worse than when I hear you say fighting to live, I look at that as a pleasant experience, not really a fight, but hey, I'm going to go do what I want to do. I'm going to be positive. Like you said, have goals. That I guess I like to use a better word than fighting. I just like to say, I'm just going to keep on living. Um, how much does the environment you're in, like I love my condo, but I would love, we're talking about moving to the Caribbean someday. How important is that? Has it been for you, like being in that different actual physical space? Well, I think environment is very important because it affects your mood. And um, like the other day I woke up and um, I had a, a snarly text message from my daughter in the morning and it sort of set me off for the whole day being like that. until so I finally had to say after lunch, okay, knock it off. You know, this is crazy. So I think it's the same thing with an environment. If you go someplace and you live where you love to be and you feel comfortable and you feel um, surrounded by beauty, it can only be positive and it can only help you. And especially for someone who's in a, the throes of an illness, you know, I think it can make all the difference in the world. Yeah. Well, that makes a lot of sense too, um, that you would do that. So we're talking environment. We're talking, um, we mentioned relationships. Boy, we could get into a lot about relationships. Um, have you dealt with people who have like toxicity around them, who have toxic people in their lives that I'm sure they're, they would be as empathetic or sympathetic as they could with somebody with a, a rough diagnosis. But have you dealt with people who say, Oh, my husband is so negative. Oh, I just can't stand it. How do you, how do you counsel or work with those people that have those toxic people in their lives? Well, it's hard, especially if they're married to him or um, blood related, but, I try to tell people to uh, surround themselves with positive people and to try to avoid toxic people. So I hate to throw my sister under the bus, but um, when my son was diagnosed as terminal, um, she she came over and she was so upset about how his terminal diagnosis was affecting her children and how she was having a hard time coping with her kids being in that space. And I just looked at her and I said, whoa, hold on. I'm the one whose child is dying. I have to get through this with my child who's dying and his younger sister. So I can't be there for you right now. So you need to go and get therapy and, you know, deal with it over here. And I'm going to go this direction because I can't have you in my space. And um, she wasn't very happy with me at the time, but it was like self-preservation. So Mm -hmm. uh, it ended up being exactly what I needed to do to save myself and so that I could stay in a positive space rather than having somebody pull you down. So I I would, I say that to people now who are either dealing with like a sick parent or a sick um, spouse, and then they've got people pulling them on the other end. A lot of times it's, it's work related. You know, their bosses don't understand. They've never been through it. So they have no empathy 
or sympathy. And so um, sometimes you just have to cut bait and save yourself. Well, yeah. And, you know, with a boss, I mean, sometimes it's better if you can not have to work and if you can figure that out to not have to work and go do something, things that you love to do. But the tough part, I think it's when it's a spouse, you know, um, but I, have you had people even cut bait with really super close people? Oh yeah. Mm, Wow. You have to, because you can't, you can't be spread so thin and then, um, deal with something that is tearing your life apart and then, you know, and keep a positive attitude so that it, it alleviates the stress. Stress is a killer, and if people allow themselves to be in toxic um, surroundings with people that are um, pulling them down, you know, it's kind of like um, if you were trying to save somebody who's drowning out in the ocean, and they ten, nine times out of ten, they pull you under, that's <laughs> what I'm talking about. You can't allow that to happen because you might not make it back. And, you know... I'm sure there's a lot of different things you can recommend to people in terms of um, support groups out there and finding those friends. And and don't you agree that, you know, sometimes it's just having a discussion with someone and saying, okay, here's what I'm going to need you to do. (laughs) Um, You know, stop crying, stop this, stop that. Here's what I need you to do. And, And people can comply with that often, especially if, you know, they just care about you and have your utmost, um, health in mind, they'll do that. They'll make changes for you. But I would suppose you probably have referred people to some excellent support groups and such. Uh, Is that often what you do? I am a big believer in support groups and in uh, professional therapists. I am actually married to a psychologist, so um, I always advocate for that. But there are times, you know, like, so your, your child or your husband dies. Grief is not a mental illness. It's a condition that is caused by the loss of somebody you love. So people are often like, well, why do I need a therapist? Because sometimes you, you need to somebody to help you navigate through that whole process because it's not easy and it's, it's, um, it's roller coaster-ish sometimes. Sometimes it's like you'd be fine and then all of a sudden you get hit by a riptide, that kind mm-hmm. of thing. And unless you've been through it, you don't understand it. And so... I always say either, you know, surround yourself with people that that love you and that will listen. Um, Number two, talk about it. Talk about the person. Don't um, feel like you're going to bum somebody out because of your loss. And um, because if you you need to talk, talk. And then if if you're having a hard time moving forward, get therapy. Find a support group. A lot of people aren't into support groups. But now there's online support groups, and people are so into their computers and Facebook and stuff like that that they're a little more open to doing some of the the online support. Mm-hmm. So I am a huge advocate for asking for what you need and going for it. Well, and you know, you make me think. Um, the the person when I lost my mom, that was the that was the only big one I ever had. Now my dad passed a few years ago, but that was the only big one. I lost my great grandmother who I adored, but she was in her nineties. So I could, I could just accept that easier. I just could, you know, and other people that were older, my mom was only 58. And, um, Mm. the, the interesting thing is (laughs) I felt very strange because it took me two years to grieve. And I literally like, I, thought I would break down and die. Like I literally thought when it happened, I would completely fall to pieces. I did the polar opposite of that. I'm an only child. So I took care of everything because I, I couldn't do that to my dad. I, I knew he was in a, probably a mental tailspin and he wouldn't have said anything. And I'm one of those people who t- typically jump in and do. So mm-hmm. I did it. I wasn't crying. And it was the weirdest thing because um, I let let myself grieve in many shifts. It's like I would get done with work and get in the car and I would drive and go hysterical. And someone said to me once, you know why you're doing it? Because in your subconscious, you know that you're driving and you can't totally freak out. You have to keep control of the car. So is it possible that you're, that you're something inside you knows what you need to do and, and it feels so overwhelmed that you could actually grieve in pieces like that? Because 
I don't know what that was, but have you heard of people doing that in little little <laughs> shifts till it took like two years to get it out? Well, you know, um, that's very typical. And, um, really? Hmm. Because, see, you hadn't done it before. You didn't know. But your body or your brain is saying, okay, she can only handle this much at this time. And when you said that about uh, freaking out in the car, I used to do that. Um, I did that before Corey died. I would um, cry in the shower and then yell and scream in the car. People thought I was nuts at stop signs and stoplights. But um, the other part of that is that you were trying to protect your dad. So um, it's really typical for teenagers, especially, to delay grief and children. But teenagers, it's usually 18 months they start, is when they start grieving. And it's all tied to watching the parents and not wanting to upset the parents or the parent, the remaining parent, um, because they, it's kind of an unstable time. And so they're watching their parents go through something that they've never seen them before, uh, look broken or crying or, you know, not knowing, not being completely confident like we see our parents uh, as we're growing up. And so I think what you were doing was the same thing that teenagers do, and that was you were protecting your dad and yourself and your um, heart and your brain were saying, okay, she can only take this much, so we're going to do it in little increments. But, you know, there's no... There's no um, common time frame for grief people grieve the rest of their lives I mean I still Corey's been gone since 1985 and I still miss him every day I don't mm-hmm. cry anymore um, not even on anniversaries and stuff like that but I happened to watch a movie last night called um, Me Before You I think and um, my husband tried to stop me from watching it because he'd read the book and I didn't know anything about it I just thought well this looks like a good movie and I clicked on it and there were so many parallels to my, my life because I had a boyfriend named Michael who broke his neck um, when we were in our late teens, and he ended up dying as a result of the injuries that he sustained. But for two years, I went to the hospital every day um, to hang out with him and, you know, try to help him get through what he was going through. And um, one of the guys in the movie last night was a quadriplegic. And then, you know, there was all these issues around... Um, letting him die or, you know, him choosing to die and that kind of stuff. And um, I went through a, um, a big hoop-de-doo at the hospital when Corey wanted to stop chemotherapy. And, you know, they kept saying, well, an eight-year-old child can't make that decision. And it was um, it was a really rough time, you know, having to deal with the healthcare professionals in that respect because they weren't respecting what Corey wanted or what I was doing as a parent was trying to support my child. So I'm watching that movie last night. I started grieving. And mm-hmm. my husband said, I told you not to watch this movie. <laughs> but here it is all these years later because Corey died in 1985 on Mother's Day. And I'm still, oh, my gosh. And Michael died two years, you know, a couple years before that. So it doesn't oh go goodness. away. You, you just I, get used to it. Oh, I had no idea that 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 kind of grieving happened. I didn't know what was happening. Um, I, I felt bizarre. I will tell you that. I mean, you can't explain to somebody how weird it feels. <laughs> That's the only way yeah. I can put it. It, it is very, <laughs> it's very weird. And um, I didn't know what that was. I was scared that I wasn't grieving. And other people were scared too, telling me, why aren't you crying? You know, and I said, I don't know. Um, and then after it happened and I went through it, I, I understood it. I just didn't think it was normal. So it's interesting. I'm glad listeners can hear this, that there are different ways to do it, especially if you are not starting the process right away, that, that it's might, it might be a couple of years because you didn't even start for eight or, not eight or nine months later. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Well, you know, that's what I tell people. There is no right way or wrong way to grieve. It's completely individual. And it's what you've been exposed to and what your life experiences have been that shape how you grieve. And um, there's no right or wrong way. And people need to hear that, too, and that men and women grieve differently because men and women communicate differently and they internalize things differently and they process differently. It doesn't mean one's better than the other. It just means that it's different. And I've talked to a lot of, I did a lot of grief workshops and uh, support groups where the husbands and wives of kids that were gone were 
on the verge of splitting up, mostly. It's a huge um, marriage killer uh, mm-hmm. going through that kind of a process. But um, the ones that survived were the ones that respected that each other's um, style was different. The ones that didn't, they didn't even try to understand. They, they kept comparing their grief style to their spouses, and they don't match. You know, people do, diff- do things differently. And people react differently to grief, you know. Some people will go eat themselves into oblivion, or they'll go drink, or they'll take drugs, or they'll have sex. You know, they'll go into some kind of addictive behavior to try to get through how painful the grief process is. And um, a lot of marriages don't survive that. Well, that makes a lot of sense, too, because for that person who isn't showing their grief outwardly, that frustrates mm-hmm. somebody who is like, what, don't you care? Are you over this? Uh, no, That's <laughs> of course exactly not. Right. You know, so you it's a different. It. Yeah. Stuff. Wow. That's a different stuff. Well, you know, I read somewhere, this always interested me. I read that people should be done with their, once they start the grieving process, I read somewhere, if you're still grieving after 15 months, say, say you didn't start till nine months in. Okay. 15 up to 15 months up over that period is a grieving process. If you start coming up on like further than 15 months, two years of grieving, that that might indicate some other problems. Do you think there is a grieving period that if it goes on too long, there is something else wrong? Should you really be through the actual grieving period in 15 months from the time you start grieving? No. no. And again, it's, it's kind of, I don't know why people try to put numbers on things. Um, the, like you, like you just said, if somebody doesn't start the process until nine months after, because they've been in, um, numb, you know, there's all these, these phases that you go through. And one of them is being numb and not being able to function. If you are in that phase longer than a couple of years, then you have complicated grief and you definitely need to go see a therapist. Like if but, you're still crying <clears throat> after 10 years, uh, like five times a week, there's something else going on. It's not just yeah, that, right? exactly. And that you know what I've seen a, I, I saw a mom who she went to the cemetery every day, and to the detriment of the rest of the kids, she had three other kids and a husband, and she was so enmeshed in her grief. And I kind of started thinking, okay, I think she feels like if she stops grieving, she is betraying her daughter. Like it's mm-hmm. the, the, her last connection to the, her child, and she didn't want to give that up. And, the guilt. Um, she feels guilty. Yeah, exactly. And uh, she would go and put toys on the grave. And the, on the kid's birthday, there was three birthday cakes sitting out there in the rain kind of stuff. And I thought, okay, I need to talk to her. She needs to get, she needs to start moving forward. And um, I felt really bad for her, for her other kids because they were virtually ignored. And um, she finally pulled out of it. But it took her a couple years and a lot of therapy. Like someone had to so that talk kind with of stuff, her. When it's really, when it's really enmeshed, you and you know, it looks like you should be moving a little bit forward. But if you're mm-hmm. if you're not able to function and do your normal day to day stuff, I mean, I I was a single parent. I had to put one foot in front of the other and keep going. But um, didn't mean I didn't cry, you know. But I didn't do it in front of my daughter because I didn't want her to be upset. Well, I found out years later that she thought that I didn't care because she didn't see me crying all the time. And that oh. when, and she wanted to cry, and she didn't feel like she could. And so it's like I didn't give her permission to um, go with the flow with her. She was sick, so she didn't quite understand it. But um, we worked it out in therapy when she was a teenager. So at some point, you're going to have to you're going to have to work through it, or it'll eat you alive. I've seen parents too who, uh, this one mom, who pretended like she never had a kid. She never told anybody that she met after her son died that she'd been a mom and he was an only child and she was devastated, but she tried to just act like nothing was wrong. And, um, her son died about eight months before mine and they were friends. And I was at work one day and I just had a breakdown. So I called her thinking I would get some kind of support. And she said, well, you need to take all those pictures down. You've got pictures of them all over your house and all over your office. Of course, you're going to be upset. And I said, well, I'm not going to pretend like he never existed, you know. So come to find out that's what she had done. And 
took her maybe three years later, and she had a breakdown and ended up hospitalized because it finally came around and bit her in the butt. Yeah, that sounds so, scary to me. That's the first word I thought of. That's scary. Yeah, you can't you can't deny it, and you can't not experience it. And you can't, I mean, there are people that try like she did, but um, at the other end of the spectrum, I had a woman who I'm really good friends with now who came to one of my um, support groups after her little guy died. Uh, she was the healthiest griever I've ever seen. She was angry, she was sad, and she verbalized it. And she's so healthy now, it's not, it's amazing. I always use her as an example because she, she just did it well. She didn't just knew innately how to, how to grieve. Wow. And do you think, you know, people who let that out, do you think there's a difference with an extrovert and an introvert? Um, do introverts tend to keep that more inside? And do extroverts, do you think, grieve better because they do let it out? Or have you read any research on that? Or what are your experiences with that? I saw an article about that, but I can't remember what their finding was. I just feel like I have a daughter that's an extreme introvert, and um, she internalizes everything. And then I have one that's an extrovert, and she's emotes all over the place. I do think that it's harder for people that don't express themselves um, openly, but in my daughter's case, I always encouraged her to write things down, like write down her feelings if she didn't want to talk about them. And um, that seemed to help because she at least had an outlet. And she, she had a couple of really good friends. I think you have to have, be able to talk about it and, or else you'll explode but, or implode. Yeah. But um, I do think that you're right. I think people that are more extroverted have an easier time just because they're more used to hearing themselves talk. Right. That, that does make sense. Of course, that's not what I did. I'm extremely extroverted, but you know, everybody's different. You're just not going to, you're not going to know what's going to happen until you go through it. Um, Right. And if if you've never had some, if you've never seen anybody do it too, you know, if you never had a role model of how it's supposed to look, then you don't know what to do. Exactly. I mean, you wouldn't, because no one wants to think about that (laughs) at all. (laughs) Yeah. So, so, you know, We've talked a lot about who, people who have had devastating diagnoses and, and, and those who are going through grieving, too. Um, what are some specific things that you say to people who have lost somebody very close to them? How do you, how do you get, them, get them started on the process? Or what are some big things that you would say to our listeners if they're going through a grieving process with a loved one? Well, I just recently lost my youngest brother. And... Um, he lived in Washington, or he lived in Washington, and uh, I tried to be there for him, even though it was long distance, and just listen to him and talk to him. He was pretty introverted, too. He was a musician, but he was always very quiet. So mm-hmm. I flew out there, and I just sat by his bed and said, you know, how do you think it's going? What do you want to have happen? Do you know what's going to happen? And he said, yeah, I'm not going to make it, you know. And so we talked about it, and I said, well, have you talked to your family about this? Well, he had not because he was trying to protect them. And then right before, oh, gosh, a week before he died, I flew back over there, and um, he said, uh, I don't know how to bring it up. I don't know how to do this without devastating them. And I said, well, do you want me to bring it up? <laughs> you know. So I sat with him and tried to get his wife to understand because she was so in love with him and so into denial about what was happening, and God bless her, she's very, very Catholic, and she just thought she could pray it away, and mm. I knew that was going to really hurt when that didn't work. So, unfortunately, they finally, she got it, and then the next day they told the kids, who were adults, but young 20s, and they said, you know, there's nothing else that can be done, blah, blah, blah. He's in the hospital, right? But they didn't say it's imminent, and he was gone four days later. And the oh. kids were devastated because they weren't prepared at all because they just thought, okay, dad's in the hospital again. He's going to come home, you know, and he's going to die soon. But they didn't think it was going to be four days from when they were told. So, Oh, my goodness. Um, yeah. So luckily I was there and sat with them and tried to explain that, you know, it was probably hard for his their, the parents to talk about it and that their mom had just come to accept it and that nobody knew 
you know, how soon it was going to be. And, you know, I'm sorry because I kind of knew, but I thought that they had covered that because I left the room and let them have privacy. And, um, but again, it all goes back to the honesty thing and trying to be as completely honest from all parties, the person who's with the person who's dying and with the survivors. And, you know, it's a two-way street. So he knew, but he didn't share it with them. And until I got back there, because I think he needed me there to try to support them. But um, but I think that's the most important thing is to get your goodbyes said, get your I love you said, you know, make it very clear what you want to have happen with your body afterwards. And um, it was really cute. My brother sat the two kids and his wife down and (laughs) I thought he wanted to give them his last um, his last thoughts. And I thought it was going to be something really profound. <laughs> he, he turned to my nephew and he said, okay, the recycling goes out on Monday and the garbage goes out on Tuesday. And if you don't feed my dog, I'm going to come back and haunt you. <laughs> <laughs> you know, oh, my God, that would make me cry so hard. Like that, that would oh, take me over the top. Good. <laughs> he oh. told my niece that she, he didn't like her boyfriend, that she could do better. And then he told his wife to get a new car. <laughs> because the one she had was not safe and it was time to let go of it. So it was such funny. It was funny at the time, but um, sad because you know, that was the last thing he said. And, he, you know, he did it with humor, but he was serious. <laughs> oh, yeah, right. I mean, yeah. I know. because Well, yeah. you know, and a lot of this depends on your personal belief system. I mean, this is not a religious or spiritual show because our, our folks who listen in are – you know, listening in for ways to feel their best. So we're, we're careful of that. Um, however, you know, I'm sure that, that, that is a big, big piece in this, um, in terms of what your belief is of what happens after. Um, and mm-hmm. I would imagine it affects how you deal with things. Have you found that to be true or no? Oh, no, absolutely. This is a, that's funny that you brought that up because the thought crossed my mind a few minutes ago when my son died, I looked around the room. It was in a little tiny chapel um, where we had the service, and he had designed his entire funeral service. He was—he died right after his ninth birthday, but he was eight when he was diagnosed as, as um, terminal. And the people that were struggling the hardest during the funeral were the ones that were part of organized religion. Not just one specific one, but different ones. And I kind of looked around the room and I thought, oh, that's kind of interesting. I always sort of check that in the back of my mind. Um, and it, it all has to do with what the, what their belief system is about what happens to your soul or your, you know, where you go after. Mm-hmm. I think the ones that don't believe in anything that think you just go into oblivion and, you know, it's all done, um, have the hardest time too. There's, cause there's nothing to hold on to or nothing to look forward to, but it's, it's interesting. My um, my brother really, you know, he struggled, and he want he wanted to live so bad. He was quite young, and um, like I said, his family was Catholic. And then my cousin died a couple months after him, and he was a non denominational Christian, but super religious, and he died with a smile on his face, you know, mm-hmm. because he of where he thought he was, you know, his soul was going to end up. So it's interesting um, uh, how they're all so different. Right. And, you know, you could have one person who two people have the same religion, but they deal with it differently depending upon what they're focusing on. Um, also, no, it's, it's on what their life experience is, too. Oh, yes. Yeah. What they've been yeah. told about it, what they believe, what, you know, mm-hmm. lots of different things. So true. Well, you know, in, in our time that we have left, I'd really like to to make a shift a little bit about, you know, we, we talked about coming to the point of helping people feel more positive, especially when you're surrounded by sadness. You know, you want to, you want to get to the point where you break out of it. Um, you want to get to the point where even when you're sad, you want, a lot of times I find in my family, when my mom's brother died very young, he was in his fifties as well. Um, humor is what we use. (laughs) We use it all the time and a lot of it. Um, 
what are things that, that, that you've seen happen that really help people to bring them back or, or even what would you recommend to people to sort of get back into life again, to, to, to feel a little bit better? Like, especially hits me when you talk about that woman who, who couldn't let go, went to the gravesite every day because she felt guilty. Like she couldn't transition her, her grief to, okay, I, I could feel her every day in a really good way. That's what I did with my mom. That's how I got through it. That makes me sad to think, you know, how long that poor woman went through that. What, what do you tell people to, to sort of get into the next level or if they're still in grief, how can they find some sense of, oh, what's the word? I, I don't want to use the word uh, cheerful because that's not it, but some sense of, of maybe just feeling a little more at ease. Well, I remember when it first happened with my son, you know, the sky wasn't as blue anymore. The mountains mm-hmm. weren't as pretty. Everything was sort of had a, a dull um, sheen to it. And it took a while for that to lift. But I think you have to stay busy and not bop till you drop. A lot of people do that, too. Like, they just go out and go full force until they hit the wall. Um, yep. I think doing doing for others, you know, being doing something positive for other people really helps. Um, volunteering, uh, helping at a food kitchen, going and sitting with um, an elderly person in an old folks' home and you know writing for them or just visiting them. So doing for others, I think, is is a something that helps. And focusing on what you're grateful for. If you wake up every morning and you write down, you know, today I'm going to do this, and at the end of the day, I'm so grateful that this happened, and um, Looking for the positive, when Corey died, he was such a great teacher. He said, Mom, you know, he told me when he was three that he wasn't going to get to grow up. And so I had to deal with that because that was before he was diagnosed. And Really? Um, well, that's amazing. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He, he, was, he was an interesting child. He's but, intuitive, uh, obviously. He, extremely. But he taught me to live in the moment, which was hard when it came time to pay and build. <laughs> but um, his his attitude was to live in the moment, savor as much of it as possible, and be grateful for what you've been given. His whole attitude about dying was so amazing that um, he told me that the greatest gift, and he we didn't go to church, but he was a huge believer in God. Um, he told me that the greatest gift that you get from God is your life and that you have to live it as best as you can, no matter how much time you're given. So taking from him um, those kinds of little pearls of wisdom that he dropped on me all the time helped me get through what I had to get through. And then he told me that his purpose in coming to be my child was to teach me about how to live positively so that I could teach others and that I could help others. And so that's why I started doing the grief workshops and the grief support groups and stuff like that, because he wanted me to help other moms and dads who had gone through the, down the same path that we had and help them to learn how to deal with their kids. Because a lot of people weren't open and honest with their children about what was going on. You know, the kids were, they thought the ki- that the kids were too little and didn't understand what was happening, so they never talked to them about it. And Kids are really intelligent, and they know what's going on. They know intuitively, obviously, like he did, but they also uh, take their cues from the adults, and so they won't say anything if the parents aren't dealing with it. I had a little boy named Kamaki that right before he died, a week I went to see him a week before he died, and he said, will you help my mom? And I said, of course. And he said, I'm not going to be here much longer. And he said, and she doesn't get it. And I said, oh, I'm sorry. I said, do you want to talk? Want me to talk to her while you're there? And he said, no. He said, she's going to be in denial until I'm gone. Well, as he started to die, she started freaking out and tried to rush into the hospital. And he was in a lot of pain already. And he just said, Mom, Mom, stop. And she finally listened to him at the door. And he said, I'm just going to die. You know, I don't need to go to the hospital. And, um, and he said, and I want you to talk to Shirley. Well, she called me afterwards to tell me what he'd said and that he'd passed, and I told her about the conversation he and I'd had the week before, and she said, well, why didn't you want to talk to me? And I said, because he, he knew you wouldn't listen. 
And I said, so I'm just glad that you stopped at the door instead of putting him through a, car, a crazy car ride, you know, to the hospital. So it is all about being open and honest and listening and sharing and being grateful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and connecting, you know, making connections for me. Um, I just decided mm-hmm. to to have my mom in my life in a new way, but not everybody believes in that. You know, I, mm-hmm. I personally, you know, believe that I, you know, be, be through dreams and signs I get, and I have this little back area um, porch thing, I call it the bistro, and half of it's dedicated to my mom, the other half to my dad in the way that I like kind of put it together and decorate it. So like, mm-hmm. I do things like that um stuff comes up i acknowledge it i laugh you know when i think of my parents i i i just connect with them on a different level i'm on a different plane than they are again i don't want to get too religious spiritual whatever you call it but that's what works for me um to, i take notice of a lot more things in the world i changed dramatically when my mom died and it's interesting what you say about children cuz part of me says there's something going on when you're so in tune between life and death, the biggest thing that could happen to a human being. I, I just wonder if there's research behind this, you know, where parts of your brain can, we don't use so much of our brain, parts of it can open up and especially that left side, or is it, no, it's our right side that's the intuitive creative side, correct? I think it's the right no, side. No, it's the opposite. It's the yeah, left side that's, okay. Yeah. You know, and I hope, I wonder if that side opens up more. Um, and allows people to kind of let things, people who are are dying to let things in, because that was awfully um, beyond your child's years to be able to know what he knew. I mean, did you find that, you probably don't find it shocking anymore, but it it, it just makes me wide-eyed, you know, to think of how does that happen? Well, you know, like I said, we weren't, um, he was, he was baptized in his dad's uh, religion, but we never went to church um, because he couldn't be around germs and stuff. So we weren't very churchy <laughs> back then. Mm-hmm. But the stuff that he came up with, he actually had out-of-body experiences for about a year and a half before he died. And um, and he he came back. He went to the other side. He called it crossing over the Rainbow Bridge. That was the, the bridge from here to heaven. Mm-hmm. And um, he came back with messages from people that he didn't know. So people oh, that goodness. were like friends with my mom or, you know, my grandfather who had died 10 years before he was even conceived. So it was pretty remarkable stuff. And, um, you know, I had one doctor say, oh, well, you know, he, he's oxygen deprived or whatever. And I said, that doesn't, how can he bring back accurate messages? You know, like my boyfriend that died from the broken neck, he Corey knew that he uh, that I'd had a friend who had died after he broke his neck. He's such a little kid. He didn't understand that broken neck meant that your legs don't work. And his message was around Michael wanting to tell me and his dad that he could dance and run and walk again on the other side. So his messages were pretty profound. And, um, you know, he talked about heaven, even though he hadn't been taught that. So he was a pretty, he was a pretty interesting kid, but that's what my first book was about was those experiences that I had with this particular child and how his, um, his little episodes and his little explanations got me through that whole thing. And, um, and that he came with a purpose and that everybody comes with a purpose. So, you know, some people call it blasphemous to think that he would even say those kinds of things. Other people are grateful that he said it. You know, he wasn't here to try to proselytize, but he. I just wrote a story about what actually happened in our family, and people, you know, either take it or leave it. But most people find a lot of comfort in the stuff that he that he talked about and things that he experienced. Well, I'm I'm sure they would. I mean, that's just. You know, I've read about those kinds of things, and I'm amazed by them. Um, Eben Alexander, do you know who Eben Alexander is? He's a neuro, 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 I can't think. He's a doctor, neuroscientist, and it was really 
It was really interesting. Um, he's had the same. Was he the guy he's that had, had the near death experience? Yes. Yes, and the, okay. it's just very interesting um, because he he works with the brain. He said, "There's no way this could have happened, and yet it happened to me." It's very very interesting. And of course, I'm trying to think of the <laughs> book. I can't think of it, but I can remember his name, Eben. He has an interesting first name. I think it's E B as in boy A N. And uh, mm-hmm. I love the book. I highly, you know, I recommend it for people who are interested in hearing about um, near, you know, near death experiences or coming back, et cetera. But, um, mm-hmm. but anyway, so, so just, I mean, not, not anyway, but boy, it's, it's, it's so profound. It's hard to even transition out of, out of that. Um, but, you know, we're talking along the lines of, of helping people to kind of get themselves into a better place. Um, in terms of actual happiness, do you have any other um, bits of advice you'd give our listeners in terms of, you know, how to get to a better space? Well, using your example, you are celebrating and thinking of positive things and funny things about your parents and, you know, reminding yourself of those things. It's so much more important to do that kind of thing than to focus on what you've lost or, you know, what the struggle was like as you went through it. You know, you do get to a point where you start thinking about the good times. And I always tell people to focus on those and write them down so you don't forget. Get out pictures, you know, like organize your pictures. I don't know about you, but I had boxes of them. And so it was just fun to kind of go through and remember things. And then I did that with my daughter to keep um, Corey's spirit alive with her and to let her know that it was okay to talk about him and talk about the fun times that we had. And remember the Easter egg hunt where I had to hide the eggs 10 times, you know, that kind of thing. So it's really about choosing to be happy and focusing on um, positive memories and communication with people that, also cared and loved the person that is gone. So, you know, I used to have little parties and with some of his friends and their, their moms, and we'd sit around and drink tea and tell funny stories and share pictures and write down stuff. And it was, uh, for a long time, we would um, have the kids write notes or make cards, and then we would take them up to the, the cemetery for Christmas around his birthday and... Um, you know, put them in a little box and leave them there so that he wasn't forgotten in their minds and in their hearts. And they were thinking of positive things because they focused on telling stories about what they remembered um, about him, what they liked the most. Mm-hmm. And I think you can do that with just about anybody, you know, whether it's an adult or a child. But it is really about choosing happy over sad and fun times over the horrors, you know. Well, yeah, and you have to get to that point, you know, where you can do that. Um, and I, I, I'm trying to think back. I mean, people can start that process while they're grieving. Do you find that people do? Yeah, they do. And, and I encourage journaling. You know, journaling is uh, very helpful, especially for some people that don't have a lot of close friends or they're, um, you know, they feel like talking about their husband or their wife or their kid, you know, is a betrayal. If you write it down, you don't have to ever read it again, but it really helps to get it out. And um, it helps you be present with your thoughts and also to um, focus on things that you want to remember. So I I, I am a huge advocate of writing, but that's because I'm a writer. So I suppose people could record it as well. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's so much around writing things. I mean, people will tell you to journal anything. Do gratitude journals because we, you know, we know there's scientific research that says gratitude helps um, release the pleasure and reward zones in your brain with dopamine and, Mm -hmm. you know, the serotonin that gets released. And same thing with being altruistic and giving back to others. Like you've already mentioned. I mean, you can journal about anything that's important to you or that you need to get out and, um, you know, I'm terrible about writing. I'm really good in the car with doing like, I call it a gratitude rant where I will just, <laughs> just rant and just let it out, you know, especially when I'm feeling down, I'll start doing it and it will just lift me up. It always has. And I wondered about why. And then once I got into, you know, working in the field of happiness, I understood, but 
it is really amazing what it will do for you. And, and thinking about, you know, you know, if you really look at the big picture, we're all going to leave this world at some point. Right. No, we don't, we don't right. want it to happen. It's not, we don't like the timeline for some people. And uh, <laughs> yeah. we just, that's just isn't working for us, but that is the cycle of life. And and that is how life works, no matter how hard it is. So you think, well, it's going to be me too. So why not celebrate this person? Why not do things on behalf of this person? Why not put all that good out there, um, you know, and in our minds, like the work you do uh, in honor of this person. So the work you do is so important, Shirley. And, you know, and with that, I, I really want you to tell uh, our audience about, you know, what you do, how they can find you. I see you've got your website, which is your name, www.shirleyennebrad, E-N-E-B-R-A-D, shirleyennebrad.com. Tell us what you want to tell us. What should our audience know about you or how can they find you? Well, that's probably the easiest way to find me is on the website. And um, I try to blog at least once a week. Um, I I also professionally blog for a couple of um, places here on the island. So, I am only usually um, have enough time to do it once a week, but I do when somebody brings up a, an issue around grief or um, I see something in the news, then I'll write about it. Um, it's it's um, a long time coming. My book was like 12 years of writing and sitting and writing. So um, I highly recommend it for anybody um, because no matter what, like you said, everybody's going to have to face grief someday. And it's always better to be prepared than to have it sneak up on you. And mm-hmm. I really uh, appreciate any feedback through the blog and through the website. And people can ask me questions and I'll answer them. And um, that's it. <laughs> Being on an island, it's hard to get around. So. <laughs> Well, well, wonderful, and and I, you know, in your bio, you were talking about different, different groups you run. So obviously, do you just stay work within you know a certain amount of miles from your home typically when you work with people? Well, I do now, but some a lot of it's over the phone or, mm-hmm. um, yes, yeah, or Skype. But the um, we have problems with connectivity here on the island, so Skype doesn't all you know you get cut off a lot, but. Um, yeah, people can just email me through the website and ask away. I'm here to help anybody who's going through the grieving process. My newest book is um, about how to survive a devastating diagnosis. That's not on the website yet because it's uh, still being edited. Okay, wonderful. Well, this is really great information. Um, the work you're doing is so important, Shirley, and it's you've been such a wonderful guest. Really appreciate you being on the show. And uh, everybody go to www.shirleyennebrad.com, uh, especially um, if, you, if you're going through grief or you've lost a loved one or you're having issues yourself um, with illness and you want to learn how to deal with it better. Well, Shirley, again, thanks for being on the Happiness Hangout. We loved having you. Thank you so much, and I would be happy to do it anytime. Have a great day. Wonderful. Thank you. Well, everybody, um, that's our show today. want to thank our sponsors, AirServe of Strongsville and AirServe of Mentor, your residential and commercial heating and cooling specialist. If you're in the Cleveland area, make sure you go to www.airserve.com, and that's A-I-R-E, S-E-R-V slash mentor or slash Strongsville. Also, The Magic Happens Magazine, thriving out loud at The Magic Happens Magazine. Check out some amazing, inspiring articles at www.themagichappens.com. www.themagichappens.com. Thanks again for being with us on The Happiness Hangout, and see you next time. Hi, this is your host, Lori. Want to get more happiness? Check out all the free readings, activities, and my blog at my website. Want to learn how to deal with life's challenges from your positive core? Check out Empowering Yourself to Happiness class, done totally online. You can find it all at www.happinesshangout.net. www.happinesshangout.net. 
Come explore and feel better wherever you are. This is Lori Peters with the Happiness Hangout. I provide presentations on happiness and well-being to businesses, schools, and anyone involved in wellness and professional days. Check out tons of free resources and activities also at my website, www.happinesshangout.net. Feel better wherever you are. Help us grow the Happiness Hangout Show. Become a sponsor. Businesses and nonprofits get your info out there to thousands of my listeners all over the world for just pennies. Individuals can also sponsor one or more shows, and you get a shout-out to your favorite charity. Several packages available. Come see what you get and put out there what's important to you. Go to www.happinesshangout.net www.happinesshangout.net for more information.